Welcome to the Untangling Web3 podcast, your go-to hub to learn insights and the latest developments in the wild and wonderful world of Web3. I'm Alec Burns. And I'm Jack Davis. Tune in each week as we navigate and explore the rapidly emerging landscape of the Web3 technologies, projects, and ideas that are shaping the future of the internet. We'll be talking to the best and brightest in the industry to keep uncovering insights. So that hopefully we can all learn together on our journey to untangle Web3. Welcome to another episode of the Untangling Web3 podcast. Hey, Jack, how are you doing? Yeah, very well, thanks. How are you, Alec? Yeah, not too bad. I think I'm still riding the high of last week's episode, so I'm very excited for this. Yeah, exactly. You know, most epi- most podcasts don't make it past episode one, so uh, this is uh, this is exciting to be here to do the second. Yeah, it was a big first episode as well. I think we covered a lot and I think we realized how much, how many gaps we have in our knowledge and how big this is going to be. Yeah, it's one of those, you know, it's a difficult balance between trying to cover something at high level and generically and give an overall picture. But, um, you know, that we introduce so many concepts that we'll definitely need entire episodes on in the future. So don't worry if you listen to the first one and we're thinking... uh, you know, what are we talking about at some points? Because we'll definitely expand on everything in the future, I think. Yeah, so we didn't actually realize this was going to be a thing, but we obviously referenced my mom quite a bit in the last episode. So I had to show her the episode and she loved it. I mean, she loves everything I do. So I don't know if she's a, a very fair kind of judge of everything. But one of her biggest questions was, okay, I kind of understand what Web3 is. What is blockchain? What is this blockchain that you keep talking about? And I think that's quite an important thing. And it's going to be the, the core concept that we address in this week's episode. So I think, yeah, this week we're going to focus on blockchain, the history of blockchain, some of the major use cases of blockchain and the core concepts of blockchain. Yeah, that's uh, that's the the next question logically, right? It's that we, we said these two things, Web3 and blockchain are inexorably linked to one another, but we haven't really defined blockchain yet in any meaningful term. So um, well, why, don't, why don't we start there? Well, what is the definition of blockchain? Maybe if you want to go first, Alec, give us a, give us a nice layman's concise definition of, of blockchain for us. This is becoming a habit where I go first every time while you've got time to work out your answer. It's becoming clear who the layman is, by the way. So. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I am well versed in trying to make things digestible. Um, so I, my definition of blockchain would be it's effectively a digital record of transactions that are shared and maintained by you know multiple computers. And this, along with some you know, kind of quite detailed mathematics and cryptography, uh, make it very secure and very difficult to edit. And that's kind of the core concept of blockchain. Jack? Yeah, that that's, that's a good way of uh, describing it, I think when we because we mentioned digital ledgers right so really a blockchain is just a digital version of something we have many examples of in the in in the, in the real life in the historical world of these idea of ledgers so a ledger is just somewhere you're recording 
information, transactional ledgers is a classic one, you know, your bookkeepers, the books they're keeping are the ledgers themselves. And blockchain is really just a digital version of that. But it's there are kind of two aspects to what I think a blockchain is. One is the the, the, the data structure itself. So that's not necessarily the most interesting part, actually. The blockchain is just this chain of blocks, and each block is like a page in, in my ledger. So it's just an aggregation of, say, the last um, uh, month of transactions I've done or, or we've done collectively. And that structure, you know, that's not in and of itself that interesting. You can kind of recreate a blockchain like that in an Excel spreadsheet, you know, have one sheet for this month, the next sheet for the next month, and then they get linked together um, using, using this cryptography uh, that Alec mentioned. The kind of more interesting aspect of blockchain that we're talking about and why this has become a buzzword is the fact that it's distributed. So it's a distributed ledger, not just digital. And that means it's shared and replicated amongst a, a network of different computers. So it's available. People can make sure it's consistent and everyone's checking everything on, on, the, on the ledger. Yeah, I did think we said concise, but... Um, <laughs> well, you have to give some detail. Right? <laughs> no, that was great. That was, um, yeah, super informative. I think um, maybe the next thing would actually be to go into the history of blockchain. Obviously, like you say it's kind of come into the, the public limelight in the last few years with all these kind of crypto scandals and Ponzi schemes and kind of speculative um, speculative kind of money hikes. Maybe it'd be good to go into some of the background about where blockchain originated and how it's evolved over the years. Yeah, sure. I, I agree. So what what popularized blockchain? is the advent of Bitcoin. So Bitcoin, uh, the white paper came out in, in 2008, and then the first, um, uh, the actual network itself started in January 2009. And that was the first kind of uh, accepted or, or widely used, and now it's widely used, application of this blockchain structure um, and this idea of a distributed database or ledger that's maintained by an open group of our participants. So Bitcoin is really the, the, the thing that kicked everything off and started uh, the conversation about blockchain. And then a little bit further down the line, that then evolves and becomes this whole blockchain industry that we're now, we're now talking about. Yeah, I think one of the, the interesting facts that I like about Bitcoin is obviously we have these blocks, these blocks that are mined. And something that I quite like is that there was this encrypted message in the Genesis block, the first ever block of Bitcoin. Um, and the encrypted message read, it was a, a, the Times a title said, Chancellor on brink of second bailout for banks. And there was kind of like two points to that. There was a reference to some of the early work of um, blockchain technology. There was actually before it was kind of, um, I guess, moved to computers where there were some projects around using newspapers to link to link uh, events together and also around this kind of this alternative to peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system which maybe would uh, maybe improve the efficiencies of banks so I, I quite like that although i think you put your foot in it with your 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 layman's description because you said the message was encrypted and actually it may have been cryptic but it wasn't actually encrypted so the message itself and this is one of those those, those kind of things you still hear repeated a lot is people think these blockchains these distributed ledgers are uh, encrypted because we use this word crypto to talk about the assets sometimes. But actually, uh, Bitcoin is an example of uh, a blockchain where all the data is public, and that's part of why they're so they're so powerful. You can trace the movement of funds. Um, you can you can see exactly what's going on. There's no encryption of um, and encryption. By the way, maybe we should just explain is when you you have a message, so you, you might have a transaction that says uh, Alec pays me for some for some service and 
we can either encrypt that so no one can so no one can see someone can see there's a record on the blockchain but no one can see what's happened but on bitcoin actually the opposite is true you can always see there's a motion of funds from one one party to another so that's one of the key distinctions of bitcoin to some of the some of the other blockchains we see yeah and i guess we're definitely going to spend future episodes going into the difference between encryption and hashing and hashing obviously a core concept of a blockchain generally so to correct it was a hashing. It was a hash that was on the on chain, right? Not an encrypted message. Nearly. I, the message itself was still plain text. So, oh, was it? If you go down, yeah, exactly. If you go and download Block Zero or go to a Block Explorer um, mm. online and just search Bitcoin Block Zero, this message was just inscribed directly in plain text in the block as a, as a kind of timestamp of when it when it originated. So, uh, some people think the idea of this was it was a newspaper headline, as you said. Um, chancellor on the brink of second bailout of the banks and the point being that it's, it's like holding up a newspaper in a photo to show that this this is happening on this date or this couldn't happen before this date so that kind of is a time a timestamp marker for the, the start of the bitcoin blockchain okay well that yeah i mean that's a great analogy for maybe not trusting third parties all the time and sometimes self-verifying <laughs> yeah so maybe it's, it's worth then going on to, you know, what happened after that was we're talking about 2009, things developed and, and grew into now we talk about many, many thousands of blockchains that exist. So what was the kind of next phase in the evolution for you, Alec? Yeah, so I mean, the, the next phase, okay, I guess most people are aware of Ethereum, second biggest uh, blockchain by, by market cap. Um, and that was invented by a man called, well, mainly by a man called uh, Vitalik Buterin in, in 2015. It's actually really interesting why he got into uh, blockchain. Do you know this, Jack? Why Vitalik got into blockchain? I think I know part of it, but I, yeah, please remind me because I can't remember exactly. So he was um, an avid World of Warcraft player, um, actually very good at it and spent a lot of time on it. And one day his um, his, his character got nerfed, which for the non-gamers out there means his character stats were were reduced quite dramatically. And this basically like destroyed him. I think he described it as like a, a horror of centralized systems and kind of this defined his character arc. And then all of a sudden he became um, an avid admirer of blockchains and decentralized um, decentralized networks. And that's one of the primary reasons he moved towards um, developing Ethereum. So if we, um, yeah, if we think of Bitcoin as the first peer-to-peer electronic cash share system, then Ethereum hoped to be the first world computer. And it's um, oh, what, do you, what do you mean by that? What, sorry, what what do you mean by world computer there? What, what does what kind of what's the concept there? So it the idea effectively was to create a decentralized platform, and um, with a focus on the creation and execution of smart contracts. And, and smart contracts, quite really briefly, we'll probably spend future episodes speaking in detail about smart contracts, uh, self-executing contracts that are written in, in code uh, effectively. And we kind of talked about it a, a little bit in the last episode around in Web3 versus Web2, the, the trust changing and getting more visibility in, in how things are done. And smart contracts can actually play a key role in that, even if there are some issues that arise from having like this kind of quite black and white uh, or binary uh, smart contracts kind of controlling how things are done yeah i think that's a nice description i would add that if you if you think of bitcoin as being a blockchain where we're recording simple transactions in the in, in the basic case between you know people like you and i then and and the, and the nodes the the entities let's say 
who are in this network, who this distributed network, who have copies of the blockchain, their role is to verify the new transactions, check that, you know, this payment is valid and you're not trying to spend money. Uh, you're not trying to send me money that you've already sent to our producer, Emma, you know, in the background and, <laughs> and one of us is going to lose out. And in Ethereum's case, the the network of nodes, what they're doing is they're not just verifying events that are happening. They're also collectively executing some code, but essentially. So, you, so the network is uh, executing these more complex functions. They're doing computation, um, which kind of takes it a step beyond simple payments. So is Emma getting paid for this? I didn't realize we were getting paid for this. Well, I don't think we deserve to be paid just yet. So <laughs> Emma definitely does deserve to be paid. Um, she just said, lol, I wish. So yeah, I think so this this kind of rise in, in the smart contract focus of Ethereum meant there was lots of developers, lots of applications being built on top of the Ethereum network. I think one of the biggest ones that some of us are aware of would be CryptoKitties. I know, Jack, you're an avid player of CryptoKitties back in the day. It was basically a way of collecting these kind of, um, I guess, these these token kitties that you could exchange and play games with. Um, there was lots of upgrades along Ethereum. I think one of the most interesting ones, which relates to this, this smart contract, was uh, around this decentralized autonomous organization hack, which I think was back in 2016, 2017. Jack, do you remember this? Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't around in the industry per se at the time, but it's it's one of those big events that everyone is kind of uh, scarred with or remembers quite uh, quite vividly. So yeah, yeah. So so really really briefly, um, there was basically this decentralized investment pool that was built on top of Ethereum, and they used smart contracts to to govern it. And effectively, someone found a bug in these smart contracts, and they managed to siphon off fifty million back in the day of Ethereum off, off this smart contract. And this like, caused outrage in the community um, and basically divided Ethereum, not down the middle, but into two major camps. One group who were like, okay, we can't allow this hack to go ahead. We need to you know, actually correct it and bring the coins back. And the other group who were like, I mean, this is blockchains and mutability. We shouldn't be changing these things. And there was this quite a philosophical debate and it caused a, a split or a fork as we kind of call it in blockchains typically between the protocols where you had the Ethereum that most people know the most widely used one that brought the money back into the fold and kind of reverse the hack and then ethereum classic which which maintained the kind of the hack but this is this shows some of the some of the issues that actually exist with smart contracts like because they're definitive and they're so black and white which doesn't always replicate what we see in the real world these hacks can happen especially when contracts are getting quite complicated yeah and you're going back to what 2016 uh, 2017 there which is you know that seems like really the the early frontier of of the blockchain industry so that there are there are lots of these kind of examples now of things going wrong and uh, and the need for caution when when looking at and and, and also you're bringing up uh, the, the DAO hack and the kind of split in the network that happened mm. that's that introduces this idea of why is why do we talk about this pluralism of blockchains why why don't we just have one or two and in its history it's been a, uh, partly new blockchains starting up to be kind of application specific. So for a, for a certain use case, um, you know, trying to do distributed file storage as a, as, a, as a kind of utility token or something like that. Or, you know, companies just trying to, 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 to launch their own as a, as a fundraising mechanism, um, which is which is another. And the third kind of avenue then is, is when you have one blockchain where many people agree on what should be happening. And there's kind of a broad consensus on how it should work. 
and then there's, there's there's a there's a bifurcation in that group where maybe an event happens like the hack or maybe there's proposed changes that not everyone agrees with and then that's led to in part why we have quite so many blockchains now we have different camps and factions and that speaks to you know there's this underlying tribalism in a lot of blockchain um but i think we can maybe park some of that discussion for another episode um <laughs> and maybe we can uh maybe we just round off the history by talking about the third the third element of blockchains or the third kind of category we see now which is these the private blockchains right so it's so, all you know where, where did they come from yeah so the the blockchains i think the kind of the, the core original principle of blockchain was to be public was to be you know anyone could see anyone could kind of contribute um, potentially to, to these blockchains and then there was a, a move maybe in later years to have private versions of blockchains um, and these are the, the key kind of technology there was um, the focus was around enterprise grade blockchain technology for for sectors that wanted more control they wanted things to be customizable what they saw in the market say you know bitcoin ethereum maybe wasn't for them and they kind of wanted control and maybe even more efficiency which is something i guess we could speak about a bit later as opposed to maybe the trust and open openness that's provided with with public blockchains yeah and it's interesting that that i think Ironically, given that this private nature flies in the face of a lot of the early initial blockchains, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and others that they were trying to to achieve with this with this this public nature and, and not having encrypted things and not being private, and then things like Hyperledger came around in I think 2016 was when Hyperledger started mm. launching these these kind of enterprise grade private blockchains, and actually that was what gained. I would argue most traction in in uh, with companies. So there was lots and lots of projects that that took this idea. They could see the value in a shared distributed database that they could that they could you know use for specific industries. So I think shipping was one of the examples where you have lots of different parties involved with shipping. There's lots of complexity, and instead of having an open public network where everyone can verify processes, they were they decided actually we can have a closed system here. We can have a closed network of just the stakeholders that, that this, this, um, that this supply chain is relevant to, and then they would, they would maintain a blockchain together. Um, and there are lots of, there's lots of debate about the value of that, you know, whether it even is a blockchain, but it's good to acknowledge that <laughs> now we have that third dimension to things that there is also private blockchains, um, that are not, you know, not, so, not used quite so much now. And people have kind of gone back to, um, to using public blockchains i mean arguably a bit like what happened with the internet we talked last week about web mm. one web two web three and web one was um was initially very uh very distributed but we had the dot-com bubble as well right when there were lots of intranets created and private internets and obviously that concept didn't 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 have the hot same value as a public internet and then eventually everyone went back to public internet so do you think that kind of that's a similar thing we could be seeing in, in blockchain as well yeah, and I think a lot of it comes from a misconception that public blockchain means that all data that is kind of referenced on the blockchain is, is visible. You know, if I put, if I use the blockchain in any way for, for my application, it means all the raw data that I'm using on that application goes in the blockchain. Everyone can see all of my personal identifying information, everything about me, you know, my tax history, my, my salary. And that's not the case as we, we kind of go to, into, I think, in future episodes, you can just reference things on chain. And it's really difficult to create a link between the, the actual raw data and what's being referenced on the blockchain um so yeah jack how does all of this relate to web3 that's a good question because yeah this is the untangling web3 podcast so maybe i would say that 
the initial ideas and principles that are inherent to blockchain, this idea of, of removing unnecessary third parties, having more efficient, more peer-to-peer -peer direct interactions, all of these are values that are common to blockchain, essentially. So um, they, they kind of coexisted and grown up together, this notion of Web3. Web3 kind of started to be talked about a little bit after Bitcoin and the early blockchain. So I think it's a natural, I think it's a natural evolution of blockchain. Web3 is just generalizing that notion to lots of different industries and aspects of the internet. Yeah, I've seen some like nice diagrams and it's a shame that we can only share audio on this where it's like the central circle is crypto and then this, the circle outside of that is blockchain and the circle outside of that is Web3 and it kind of shows like the order of magnitude and what you need to kind of um, enable the, the other technologies. But yeah, I completely agree. I think, um, I mean, blockchain is effectively the key technology in Web3 and to be a bit more applied, it enables decentralized and transparent ways to store and exchange information and this obviously has all the kind of the the, the effects of user control user centricity uh, enabling peer-to-peer -peer exchange without unnecessary third parties so yeah it's, it's the key technology for for web3 yeah i, I think it, i would go as far as to say and it also it's an important qualifier i think web3 could in theory be implemented without a blockchain there, there could be a way of doing it using other instruments but blockchain appears to be by far the best platform, the best tool, the best infrastructure to deliver on those promises of Web3 to solve the problems that we were talking about in the last episode. So it, they're not necessarily, uh, they don't necessarily have to go hand in hand uh, in the future, but they right now they definitely do. They're, they're definitely uh, intrinsically married to each other, I think. Yeah, and on that, I think that's a nice place to take a break. Okay, so, so far we've talked about blockchain. We've given a kind of definition together of what we think blockchain is and how it relates to Web3 and also explored a little bit of the of the history of blockchain, you know, and the industry that it, that it spawned. So why don't we turn to our, our friend ChatGPT and see how its definition lines up with ours, maybe? Well, it gets a bit creepy when you start referring to ChatGPT as a friend. Um, yeah, so I've asked ChatGPT to explain this to my mom, because obviously she's the, the only listener right now. So ChatGPT said, hey, mom, blockchain is a decentralized digital record book that securely and transparently keeps tracks of transactions. It stores information in connected blocks across multiple computers, making it difficult to tamper with. Primarily used for digital currencies like Bitcoin, blockchain also has a range of other potential applications. Not bad. Not a bad definition. Yeah, I think we've covered a few of those points, right? We mentioned about the, the it calls it a digital record book, which I think is what we're referring to as, as the ledger aspect. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's a nice, easy way of understanding it. Yeah, maybe we should go into some of these terms that, that have been kind of just, just dropped in there. Like a big one that we've obviously said many times and gets thrown around a lot in, in the space is decentralization. Yeah, we've already been you know dropping it in ourselves i've noticed um because it, it's it's so often spoken about in the same breath as, as as bitcoin and blockchain so maybe i can have a, have a stab at explaining decentralization so a lot of people refer to this concept decentralization as there being many many parties involved 
in, in this. So these networks that maintain the digital ledger itself, um, people would describe that, that, that network as decentralized if it has many, many parties that are involved. Now, in reality, you know, decentralization is a spectrum. It goes from one to potentially infinity, right? It's, it's, it's either one party, which would you'd call a, a totally centralized system. And that's what you have in existing, a lot of existing web two architectures and, and, and systems. And you, at some point along that, you have to pick what, what, what your flavor of decentralization is. And I, I would say for something like Bitcoin, it's essentially a minimum number of parties you need for the network to maintain its properties, to, to maintain its immutability, to continue functioning, um, to be safe from subversion, right? So that could be anywhere from, you know, three to maybe uh, 15 or something. And if you actually look historically, there's only ever, you know, around four to six um, of these these nodes, these Bitcoin miners that are contributing blocks at any one time. So there's, there's not actually that many people not any entities involved and the degree of decentralization you might say is not necessarily that high but that that's also that's fine the system still works nonetheless so it it depends where you fall on that spectrum but i think it's important to know that um for these systems to work it doesn't necessarily have to be that high yeah and that's something that i've seen a lot in the space that you think maybe that having a thousand different uh, parties validating things is, is preferable to a hundred and maybe that's not always, always the case it depends on how many trusted parties you actually have any how many trusted and kind of non-related parties you have uh, uh, validating the network and i think something that i found a lot and um, with this word is the kind of there's a lot of negative connotations with it you know when we think of a, a decentralized network it's it's not always like it, some people relate to um decentralization of power but it's more and more i think about uh, decentralized network is about a robust and efficient system uh, which removes any single points of failure um, and this kind of you know having multiple nodes that have the entire history of a network and could kind of ensure that, that they're operating to the same standard i think is, is more the purpose of the decentralized aspect of this and you you'll, you'll get into uh, a debate about trade-offs as well right so the more parties the more nodes you have involved then the uh, the more redundancy there is the more um, irrelevant uh, or unnecessary messages or, or, or communication between these computers if you only had three you know that that minimizes how much redundancy you'll have um, but you also want to maximize for things like availability so making sure that that data uh, will be available at some point in the network so if i only have three maybe i'm worried that if all three of those go down at the same time then i, I can't access the, the data on the ledger but if i have five or six then that's much less of an issue so it, it, it's a matter of trade-offs and, and a lot of these things are you know at the will of the markets essentially you have these these economic entities a lot of the miners in, in bitcoin are very large companies um you know so I, I think at least a few of them are publicly traded as well or, or have been in the past so they they it depends on what the incentives are for them um and, and how the, how the, how the network looks best from their perspective on depending on how many people they have you know they don't necessarily want to connect to a hundred thousand different uh home users who, who who might not be contributing very much to them whereas just connecting to the other big players might be much more preferable yeah and I think um, the, the next term that I think we should go into in, or not term, phrase, is this peer-to-peer, -peer, which obviously directly relates to decentralization. And I think a, a, a nice way to think of that is it's around direct exchange without unnecessary 
third parties. I think it's quite important to emphasize the unnecessary. I mean, most interactions, even in the Web3 model, there'll still be a point of trust to say, you know, you are who you say you are, what you're saying is true and all this kind of stuff. It's just the the, the removing of unnecessary third parties. There'll always be trusted uh, intermediaries required for a lot of interactions. Um, and I think like maybe a good way to compare this is to like cash. I think a good example is when I give you, you know, like a 20 pound note, Jack, I don't know what I'm giving you a 20 pound note for, but that's a direct peer to peer interaction. Um, and I think we don't really see that so much on the internet, but usually goes through these kind of these centralized gatekeepers that will kind of validate, verify, store and exchange the information between you and I, whereas maybe we'll see in the future, hopefully more and more peer to peer data exchange that it replicates cash exchange, where I can just pass you a piece of data directly between me and you without needing uh, unnecessary intermediaries. So are you, who, who are the and who are these intermediaries in the case of a cash payment then? Because when I hand over cash at a, 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 you know, a corner shop, then to me, it looks just like um, I'm just paying uh, the merchant, right? But maybe I'm using my uh, my debit card instead to pay for something. What, who are the intermediaries involved that are maybe unnecessary and, and things? Yeah, exactly. So in, in a cash model, there's effectively security on the note. You expect there's been some due diligence that, that has created this note, which means it's very difficult for me to create a counterfeit note. So I think that kind of really di- directly relates to blockchain. Data that's stored on blockchain and potentially been verified using cryptographic proofs or something like this, like PKI, which we'll definitely go into in future episodes, um, to prove that the data is authentic. And that enables me to directly exchange that data with you. Whereas, say, in the, in the case of your debit card, you do have the third party that's directly involved to validate that you can make that transaction. And you know, there's efficiency, efficiency trade-offs there. So I think the, the cash versus money is, a, is an interesting kind of paradigm that we will definitely talk about in future episodes. Yeah. And in both cases, it's probably important to mention that there are inefficiencies that exist that the, the kind of Bitcoin peer-to-peer model can improve on, right? So in the in the cash case, there's actually a quite high cost of storing and processing cash and validating, you know, that it's uh, that it's it's not counterfeit. That's one of the problems. And then when you go to digital payments, like if I'm paying on my credit card, then you have this this whole um, plethora of fees that come out of this, right? From your your acquirer bank, your your um, your issuing bank, the bank who issues your card, the bank who accepts the payments on behalf of the merchant. There's fees for point of sale terminals. There's all sorts of extra costs that might be hidden to us users sometimes but that will you know potentially increase the cost of the product you're buying so it's important to note that some of these can be addressed with uh, with blockchain i want to move on to maybe i want to move on to maybe um another word that was used here uh, which was digital currency in the definition because that that opens up a whole new can of worms right like what what are your thoughts on calling something like bitcoin or ethereum digital currency um, I mean, I know that, well, effectively, Bitcoin is an electronic, well, peer-to-peer electronic cash system, right? So you're going to have problems with it being called a, a digital currency, potentially. Yeah, I think, I think, I don't personally like that, that phrasing. Um, so, you know, this would be a, a, a negative point on ChatGPT here, is that currency implies a kind of sovereign state involved or some, 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 some backing by a, a state, where, whereas obviously that's not the case for the kind of public permissionless blockchains that we talk about but it does capture the fact that it's meant to work like money so it's more like digital money than, than currency i would say 
And that's quite an important distinction to make. And I wonder if you could start to involve some of the more the more speculative um, aspects of, you know, some cryptocurrencies in that when you kind of hear the term cryptocurrencies, a lot of people tend to think speculation rather than the utility that I guess a lot of, well, more and more we're seeing the focus shifting towards. So another uh, term that was used, I believe, in that definition was well, it was actually difficult to tamper with. I think the term that we've used in the previous episode and will probably use throughout will be immutability. And I think immutability is one of the, the core aspects of blockchain. And I mean, that specifically relates to two things in my mind. One, it's the decentralized nature, which we've spoken about, you know, computers holding multiple coffee, copies of the same data so they can you know, reach con consensus. And then that leads me nicely onto the second aspect, which is consensus. How do we actually um, ensure that these different versions of the same data is is the same and how do we add and append when we have you know th two three plus versions of the same data how do we make sure that as we're adding multiple transactions to that data set that everyone has the same data and that gets increasingly complicated when we think about the number of transactions that can potentially come through these networks and you know I, I, again i think we'll talk about it more in later episodes but there are different consensus algorithms there's different ways for these these computers in the network to achieve consensus uh, i mean the one that bitcoin proposed was a proof of work consensus where each node would do a large amount of work to actually kind of um, validate transactions into the network to prove there was some amount of effort uh, done in that network but more and more we're seeing say networks like ethereum shift from proof of work to proof of stake and this has been an upgrade that has taken a long time and still hasn't been like kind of fully adopted by everyone. And, you know, that's not really battle tested. So it'd be very interesting to see what actually happens when this proof of stake consensus mechanism is, is adopted. Yeah, I, I agree. I think you've, you've, you've kind of nailed, nailed on the head there. Like this immutability aspect is essentially about how difficult it is to change records once they're in the ledger. So we talked about what the ledger is and how it's maintained by this network of nodes, but not about, you know, why, how easy would it be for this network to create two, three, four different alternate versions of that network? And the proof of work algorithm you mentioned, that consensus mechanism is kind of the, the OG mechanism that was used by 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 um by Bitcoin and also Ethereum until recently when it when it adopted proof of stake, which is a slightly different, kind of less battle tested, as you said, um, version. So yeah, that that's the kind of the I would say the final element. You have the you have these different blockchains you have the fact that we also have private versus public and now you also have the the competing consensus mechanisms and which will actually bear 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 the most fruit in the future which is really interesting i think this podcast has already been worth it just by the fact that you've said og on here and it's recorded forever <laughs> yeah it's a first so for me it's a first there'll be consensus that that was a mistake i think <laughs> shall we move on to I'll bring it back from that pause. That was rubbish. Um, I was just reading the use cases that we said. Okay. So yeah, I think um, maybe I can go first with a use case that touches on the problems we talked about last week, which would be um, social media. So how can we improve social media with uh, with blockchain? Well, that would be to use this micropayments element. So using blockchains like Bitcoin to do very small payments. Um, so what, why is this a compelling use case for me? Well, it basically changes the incentive model of something like a Twitter or a Facebook. So currently it's it's free to use, it's free at the point of view. So, or maybe I should say free to interact. So we can always view the data, you can see the data even if you haven't got an account logged in. But to interact, to post, to follow, 
to comment, to be involved in the conversation, it's completely free at the minute. And I think that is the source of a lot of the problems, like uh, having uh, trolls and bot farms, where you it's, there's no cost essentially associated with uh, abusing the system. So how you would solve this with, with blockchain is to say, well, okay, instead of it being free, if you apply a certain cost to liking, to commenting, subs uh, subscribing, uh, following, and that basically means that it's much, much harder, much more costly to abuse that. Um, and you can you might be still be able to see the data. I know I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people on Twitter who are just lurkers, right? So they're they're not actually posting necessarily all the time, but it would it would it would increase the cost of of doing that and abusing that. And I think not only you know stopping those kind of problems, but it would also give you a way to earn as a user. So if I post something and, and it's a particularly a particularly funny meme or something, then I might get hundreds of likes out of that, which would then be a way I earn, I earn money directly without having to become, like we said, an influencer who's then an advertiser as well. So I can directly earn from people who follow me. I'd be interested to see what you're posting that would get hundreds of likes, but I suppose that's TBD. Um, yeah, I actually, uh, to relate this back to our first episode, I saw someone uh, compare the the kind of the, the, the Twitter lurkers to read only like in kind of the, the first phase of the internet in web mm. one so they're in read only mode where they're not engaging not really kind of contributing anything and how they move to a, a web two model so it's quite interesting I think one of my points around that would be why would I if you said to me okay you know I use Twitter right now I don't really care about privacy too much maybe you know I do have some um, some some bots that are interacting with me and I don't really like that why would I move to a model in which I would pay to engage and interact with people where I'm not paying anything right now. Well, I mean, just for that fact, so I, I don't, I wouldn't mind having a bot reply to my to my tweets and, and, and comment on my tweets if they have to pay me, you know, five p to do that. Or another interesting thing you could do is have a social media where you can scale that. So for a given account, say I've identified uh, someone I don't like or or an, or, or an, a bot account. I could toggle that they have to pay me one pound or ten pounds or a hundred pounds to comment on my on, on my tweets. So you know, I wouldn't mind uh, being <laughs> being trolled if that if I was getting paid that much for it. So I think I think there are lots of different ways you could take it, but it, it offers a different avenue, right? Got you. So this is a way for you to monetize my engagement with you on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, all these things. You basically want to distance yourself from me, or at least charge me to engage with you. Yeah, basically. You specifically. <laughs> <laughs> so i think that's that's a great one obviously everything related to social media is always good because it's very tangible everyone um there's you know what's what is it 1.5 billion users of facebook everyone kind of understands the value in having like an upgrade in social media and um, my use case is probably slightly less tangible for a lot of people even though um it affects the entire world i'd say so it's around supply chains and i think it's really important because everything made that is more complex than like a stick needs some kind of supply chains. And I think that they're more complex than ever. They're, they're multi-border, they're multi-company, they're, they're multi-ecosystem, you know, multi-everything basically. And I think quite importantly, consumers care more than ever as well. There's kind of more and more insight into supply chains and particularly, like, you know, quite dodgy supply chains and consumers care that the product they're buying, you know, has come from, say, you know, a fair trade, or they want to know who is actually involved in the in, in the entire kind of in the entire kind of supply chain itself. And I think one of the issues here is is the trust in data. So imagine like a world where each actor in a supply chain for say the coffee that you have or the phone that you're buying has to submit some data to the blockchain. 
And, you know, if we actually kind of combine this together, we get traceability. So I can actually, once I buy my item, even before I buy my item, I can trust the data and the blockchain hasn't been tampered with and actually kind of understand in more detail what the various stages were for the item that I'm about to buy. Uh, and, you know, one of the, the issues around this is garbage in, garbage out, which I think is something that is used in, in, in the kind of the blockchain space quite heavily. Blockchain really just ensures that the kind of the data hasn't been edited or hasn't been kind of um, changed anyway. So if I submit some data that isn't correct, I mean, that data is still not going to be correct. Blockchain is not really going to fix that. But one of the aspects we can actually add to kind of um, to kind of improve that is around identity. And there's a lot of work going on around digital identity. And as soon as we start to combine that with the data that's being submitted on chain, we then get a degree of authenticity and probably even um, ability to, to, to verify um, that data as well. So, yeah, for me, supply chains are a big one. I think it could also uh, streamline processes, you know, all this kind of stuff and reduce fraud. I mean we're talking a lot about emissions and how much emissions go into a supply chain, ensuring that they're compliant. There's no like slave labor that's going into it. And I think supply chains on blockchain is going to be a massive kind of uh, area yeah. for improvement over the coming years. Well, yeah, this is, I have a question on this then, because I think this is where lots of the, the private blockchains, this is the use case they were targeting, you know, when, when Hyperledger first came out. So how, you know, we talked about the, tra the transparent, nature of, of of a public blockchain so can you use public blockchain to to deal with that what if the information in the supply chain is sensitive you know is, is, that, is that is it compatible with that yeah i think so we talked earlier about hashing and i think that that's quite important you know if i say let's give an example i want to say that you know i am a farmer and I farm, you know, 10 bananas or something like that. And I want to put that at the blockchain. There's obviously various ports, exports that it needs to go through customs, all these kind of things and various actors in that supply chain. I don't necessarily need to put 10 bananas by Alec Burns on the blockchain as re like readable uh, raw data. I can put it through something called a hashing algorithm, which basically kind of obfuscates it. And obfuscates is a fancy word for kind of muddles the data so that no one can understand what it is. Put that on the blockchain. And then later on, if someone wants to understand what that, that muddled, obfuscated data is, I can provably say that my 10 bananas by Alec Burns relates to that data and was submitted at that time. And that's one of the beautiful things about hashing algorithms is that it's almost impossible. Well, it, I would basically say right now it's computationally impossible to kind of replicate that raw data mm -hmm. and relate it to a hash on chain. Um, and yeah, like I say, so the raw data doesn't need to go on chain, but there's a way of referencing it or fingerprinting it on chain and then exchanging the raw data off chain. So I could then say, if you're buying bananas, Jack, and you want to prove that I am the person that made those bananas, I'd say, okay, this is the reference on chain. doesn't mean anything to you. Now I'll give you the raw data that relates to that. And you can provably say that that was the data that was put on chain effectively using the finger. So you're using, you're using the, the, the on-chain record to check against something else in the real world. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So it's kind of like a bit like you have a, a private portion of the public blockchain. Is that, is that a fair analogy? Yeah, I'd say so. And I think, yeah, we'll still need like mechanisms for uh, exchanging the raw data. But I think the blockchain kind of uh, provides that indisputability aspect. And I think that this is quite important, actually, is that in a lot of the applications we're seeing, blockchain is really the USP. And I think to make it tangible to users, there's still a lot of things that need to be built around it. So when we're talking about the web three versus web two, a lot of the function. Okay. All right. Uh, you ready? Yeah.
Okay, so I think that's two pretty solid use cases. And we've been singing the praises of blockchain the whole time. So maybe it's worth quickly covering to finish off some of the 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 concerns or the the, the, the things you should uh, think about when using a blockchain, some of the, the considerations you have to make. So maybe we can go to, you mentioned CryptoKitties, right, earlier on. I know that was that caused a lot of problems when it first happened, right? Because it was so popular. Maybe you can talk us through what happened, actually. Yeah, so th this is a major pain point, and it kind of all revolves around scalability. And I know that this is a particular pain point for you, Jack, because you were you know, heavily involved in CryptoKitties. You're a big admirer of their work. And I think like the, the popularity of it, of CryptoKitties itself, and there was, what, 1.5 million users, active users at one stage, one of which was obviously you. Um, and this resulted in a lot of transactions um, on the Ethereum, lots of spikes in transactions. And the fees were astronomical. It was it really upped massively. And the network basically couldn't keep up with the amount of demand. And I think I saw some like news headlines where it was like crypto kitties kills Ethereum. And there was lots of network down just trying to keep up with the demand. So yeah, this is a, a big issue for, for a lot of uh, blockchains is the scalability aspect. And you know, there's kind of two mechanisms for solving this. One is like, uh, I guess, layer one scaling solutions and more and more we're seeing these kind of layer two scaling solutions that build on top of layer ones like bitcoin and ethereum well, what's, what's layer this. one and layer two can you can you describe them what the difference is yeah got you so blockchains quite generally i would describe as layer one so where the consensus is achieved it's basically the the, the kind of the the foundational uh data storage solution um, and then layer twos are, are built on top of that. So they, you know, a good example was, you know, if I kind of bundle my 10 crypto kitties together on a layer two network and I just send one reference for all of those 10 kitties to the layer one solution, there I have two layers that are effectively separated and it reduces the kind of, I guess, the, the, the throughput um, on the layer one solution by creating this or offsetting the data and the throughput onto the layer two. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that's it. It's an interesting problem. So you're basically touching on the scalability aspect, right? Which I think, you know, lots of people will, will talk about blockchains as not being scalable because you've had a lot of examples in the past. I mean, that, that CryptoKitties event was the first thing that drew the public eye on uh, on on the lack of scalability of some blockchains. Um, and it's becoming a bigger problem as, as, as they become more popular, more people want to use them, there's more demand. And then now those bottlenecks of how many transactions they can process. Um, are coming are coming to light so yeah scalability is definitely one of the biggest sticking points and there's, and there's obviously lots of different things to different approaches to solving that which mm. i think maybe we can expand on in, a, in an entire future episode because it is a big topic yeah and i think um one of the other considerations that i know you want to talk about is privacy yeah privacy definitely privacy so we've touched on it already a little bit and you know, right at the start of the episode, we were talking about this this message inscribed in the Bitcoin block zero, right, which we said was in, in plain text. You could just see it. And I was saying you can see the motion of funds um, moving between one party and another. So that seems like a big privacy issue. And it, it can be depending on how you use the blockchain. So it, there are very there are lots of different ways you can use the blockchain and you can use it in a bad way, like most technologies, most tools. Um, you can you can use it poorly and you can use it in ways that will not preserve your privacy or um, you can build in identity systems, as you were mentioning. So in again, to go back to the Bitcoin example, 
what you can actually see on the blockchain is that uh, something called a public key. And again, we'll define all these in the future, but the public key is, is something that uh, Alec and I will both have. So you'll have a public key. I'll have a public key. When he sends me Bitcoin, he's essentially sending it from his public key to my public key. And that's what controls, um, uh, what helps you control and authorize new transactions. So on the blockchain, we're not recording Alec and Jack, our identities. We're recording the public keys that the funds are moving between. And what we can do is we can build quite complex privacy features on top. So how do you know, associating identity with one of those keys, but doing it in a private way so that I can prove to Alec that this is my public key, but um, you know, not necessarily revealing to the whole world that's my public key. And that kind of brings, you know, we've seen a lot of examples of where, particularly on Ethereum, actually. So in Ethereum, they're, they're not so much called public keys, but you'll call them addresses. Um, so you'll see people saying, oh, give me some Ethereum pay to my address, which is for all intents and purposes, like a public key. And uh, they'll just post an address. And then at, from that point, you can track exactly what happens to that address. So, um, you know, you can see all the, all the motion of funds in and out. Um, so once you've made that real world identity link, then you know what's going to happen with that person in the future. And a lot of people, so the example I would give is that in the past couple of years with the, the NFT craze that was going on, you saw lots of influencers on social media who would start to promote certain projects, certain NFT tokens. And they would often do it in a way that looked innocent. They would be like, oh, I really like this NFT. This is a great project. Um, you know, have a check this out. And what they wouldn't be saying is that they're actually taking payments uh, to to promote these things and they weren't disclosing this. So this is something you have to do uh, when you're doing a paid promotion is you have to disclose it. You might have seen that on YouTube or something when whenever someone advertises, they say this includes paid promotion. Now, lots of lots of these influencers didn't include this disclosure, but they were then caught out later. So there's a really good channel I would recommend if you don't watch it, Alec, called Crypto, um, sorry, called CoffeeZilla who kind of mm. documents a lot of these happening, right? I don't know if you've seen that. But he, he basically exposed or, or shown people exposing these influencers because they'll maybe post an address one time and then you can track the funds coming in to their to their address over time. So then you can match it up. You can work out they've, they've, they might have accepted a payment from the, uh, the owner of an NFT project one hour before uh, they started promoting it out of nowhere. So, you know, you can... You can you can sacrifice your privacy if you use it incorrectly. I think is the main point. But the good message is there's lots of different ways you can you can improve your privacy when you use blockchain. Yeah, what what were some of the high profile cases? Who were some of the the, the celebrities that were getting done for these NFT schemes? <laughs> uh, I think I think Emma's saying Kim Kardashian was one of them. Um, <laughs> I, I don't want to I don't want to name any in particular, but. I can remember there being some pretty high profile ones. I think maybe, um, you know, you can go basically go and watch CoffeeZilla's channel and he will, he will give you the whole lowdown, but there are some pretty big names out there. You know, some people who like to fight in, uh, in, in amateur boxing matches and things like that, I'd say. Yeah, that's an interesting one. And um, I think, yeah, important point that you raised there around, you know, pseudo anonymity rather than anonymity that you can potentially link these addresses to people. And I think this is something that I really do want to talk about in future episodes is around like, um, you know, Ponzi schemes and kind of assets that have been stolen and how governments and kind of law enforcement agencies can actually track 
these addresses and how even though there's kind of the hackers have created these ways to obfuscate funds and assets by you know sending them between millions of transactions over the course of uh, millions of transactions millions of addresses sorry um very quickly there are quite um, impressive ways of tracking assets through all of the all of these different addresses and then eventually when someone tries to redeem those assets by you know convert it to an exchange and back into to normal currency that they can use they then you know come down on them quite swiftly and there's a lot of interest in examples of this that i think we should go go into in future episodes yeah i mean maybe i would just uh, finally close on one other concern is that because blockchains are essentially giving users more options for how they you know we're talking about monetary instruments effectively so something that can be used like digital cash or, or a bit like money so how you handle that money what security measures you take as an individual is also really important so how, how, you know if you've ever downloaded a wallet you'll have been uh, a wallet that lets you use a blockchain then you'll have been prompted no doubt to write down a 12 word phrase as your security and that you know that scares a lot of people and it's important because your personal security of your funds is actually um there there it can really go wrong you know there's the the famous case of someone from newport so you know someone else from wales not just me but um, in the blockchain landscape, but who who accidentally threw out a hard drive that contained um, uh, the, the, the security passwords effectively. So so that the the keys behind his his wallet threw out on a hard drive which contained seven and a half thousand uh, bitcoins on it. So and and I think he's had an ongoing struggle to, to work with the the local authorities to try and get it back. Which is you know it's a good story, but it's something you feel really sorry for him for. And it's you know it's it's a, it's a reminder to take care when you're using blockchains and again lots of this will be mitigated over time because it's still it's a maturing industry the the tools to, to help with these things how you can recover funds how you can um insure funds there are insurance products now for, for blockchain wallets and things so it's getting better but it's also worth worth knowing that there are risks involved when you're getting involved for the first time yeah, I find these things, these stories so interesting when someone, I think that, that guy from Newport specifically, he thinks it's in some kind of, um, some kind of land fill somewhere, right? And he's like hired multiple agencies, yeah. like some of the people that try to find like, um, crashed airplanes and things like this to help him find this, this hard disk in this landfill and offered them like 70% of the reward. There was like another one where I think he had like five attempts to guess his, um, to guess his seed phrase, which is like the, yeah, I guess like what Jack said, the, the private keys for that. And he's on like his last attempt. And it's like, if someone can help me solve this, I'll give them 90% yeah. of all the, all the monies that are on there. The irony is the guy, the guy in Newport is like, he's, I think he's put together a really interesting plan to salvage it that involves automatically searching through things using AI and robots to sift through and look for what might be the hard drive and things. Um, so yeah, it's, like, it's, it's a great story, but it's it's very sad at the same time. All the buzzwords in one project, robotics, <laughs> AI, ML, to find cryptocurrencies on hard disk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I think um, another interesting fact that Emma's just dropped into the chat that I think is, uh, is quite a good one is that the first payment that Bitcoin was actually used for was for two pizzas. And Jack, can you guess how much that was paid for those two pizzas back in 2010? two pizzas was it in america i think so let's say yeah. 30 dollars or something like that 
thirty dollars, but it was ten thousand bitcoins, which at the time was worth around forty one dollars. So you know your your guessing of pizza prices is pretty on point. And now that is worth some tens of millions of dollars. So I have no idea if that pizza joint held on to those bitcoins. Probably not, but um it's quite an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah, I just want to know what the toppings were to be worth that much, you know, gold foil or something. <laughs> the fanciest. I think it actually went down as the most expensive pizza that was ever created. You'd hope so, you know. <laughs> I don't know what would beat that. So uh, I think we've covered a lot of things there. We've discussed what blockchain is and uh, we've discussed the history of blockchain, some of the different flavors, you know, private, public, some of the different aspects like the consensus mechanism, proof of work, proof of stake. We covered a couple of use cases, which I think are really interesting. And, and it's fair to say only a couple of, uh, we're only scratching the surface of the many applications there are of blockchain, but we discussed two ones that are particularly compelling to us. And we've also covered a couple of the, the things to be wary of or the, the considerations for uh, the industry itself. So I think, I don't know what you think, Alec, that seems like a good sensible place to wrap up for this episode. Yeah, I'm hoping that it's explained, um, you know, the, the concept of blockchain to a lot of people, especially my mom. But I think as we did before, maybe we've opened up um, even more future episodes to explain a lot of the concepts that we've introduced and barely scratched the surface off. So yeah, here's to the next episode, I guess. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Untangling Web3, produced by Emma Camilleri. Don't forget to send us your thoughts, questions, and comments on social media. And be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast provider to catch the next episode. See you next time to untangle a little bit more of Web3. The views we express here are our own and do not reflect the views of our employers.